My guest is Michael Heseltine. Lord Heseltine is a former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK and is President of the European Movement in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Lord Heseltine. Pleasure to be here. Right, we've just had the seventh anniversary of the Brexit referendum, not exactly a cause for celebration for many people, but could you tell us a bit about how you think the country has changed in those seven years? People outside the UK look at this country and many can't quite believe what they're seeing. I think that most people would feel that nothing much has changed, that uh, ever since the financial crash of 2008, there have been anxieties, widely felt, about living standards frozen or hardly moving. And uh, within the domestic political scene, there has been a, a, a very undesirable chopping and changing of leadership. But the basic underlying anxieties about people's living standards, I think, are still there. Um, and that, of course, was the underlying cause of the Brexit decision. People wanted change because they were fed up and uh, the populist arguments for change are well versed in history. Got to have someone to blame, and if you can blame foreigners, that gives a colour to the debate, which is appealing to quite a lot of people. So we now have a relatively new Tory leadership, uh, which is Sunak became prime minister here a few months ago. What changes do you see in terms of attitude towards engagement with the European Union under this new Tory leadership? I think that Rishi Sunak uh, argued for uh, Brexit and that puts him therefore in a different camp to me. Right. But uh, I haven't the slightest doubt that he has brought sanity back to the governments of this country. Uh, people have uh, see somebody who gets into the figures, mm. thinks hard about the problems, uh, identifies the worst of them and gives commitments which uh, he believes will address the issues and the truth of the matter of course is that there are no short simple popular solutions and so he, he is telling the people something truthful which is very unpalatable mm. uh, so it, it's, there's no popular way of telling people that we're in trouble uh, but they, the fact is we are in trouble yeah. and uh, sooner or later this has got to be dealt with but it will take time and involve pain. Well he obviously successfully negotiated the, this conundrum of the Northern Ireland Protocol with the, with the European Union uh, in the shape of this new uh, Windsor framework. In your view what is the significance of this agreement on the Windsor framework? Well, uh, the real problem in Northern Ireland is the fact that the uh, Good Friday Agreement is suspended and that uh, um, Stormont is uh, in abeyance and that's very tragic because without doubt the, the Good Friday Agreement was a, a major change in the relationships uh, in Northern Ireland, um, much to be admired. Now you have a situation where um, as part of the Brexit uh, case, people were told there'd be no frontiers and all of this, mm. and of course there is that, but that was a lie. Um, and we now have a situation where the DUP uh, are faced with a situation that 
the uh, Sinn Féin, as the largest party, would choose the first minister, which is something the DUP would find extremely difficult to accept. Mm. So the whole thing is muddled up with, right. with internal politics and Brexit. Uh, and uh, I, uh, what is undoubtedly the case is that uh, Rishi Sunak has, has made strenuous efforts to find a solution to the problem, but he can't order the DUP to accept it. Right. But in broad terms, and maybe going back to my previous question, how optimistic are you that this new leadership, despite the Northern Ireland uh, politics you just uh, sketched out the other time, is, uh, gives grounds for new hope and optimism in terms of our UK's relations with the European Union? Uh, I, I think that one mustn't get uh, over-exaggerate the situation. Right. You mentioned new hope, new optimism. I don't think that's the game we're in. Right. What we're in is the recreation of an atmosphere of practicality, right. of civilised dialogue, of the end of the trivial schoolboy type abuse that was characteristic of much of the sort of Brexit debate. So one has to be grateful for a British government that is acting as a mature political force. Mm. Um, but it <laughs> so great is the difficulty underlying the Brexit fracture that that, that, that doesn't amount to a new optimism because putting the, that problem right is not short term, it's not easy mm. uh, and um, will require a great deal of uh, uh, commitment by people who realise what a disaster Brexit is. And when it comes to the Labour Party, as you know, the Labour Party is very keen to position itself as a, a much more constructive partner, uh, even now in opposition, but certainly if it were to win the next general election with its European partners. Do you, do you buy into that? Do you see a, a clear signs and, and sincere signs that Labour Party uh, would be a more constructive partner or, or not? No, I don't think there are signs that uh, um, they would be more. I think they, they would, in practice, uh, adopt a, a gradualist approach. Mm. Um, but the, the real criticism of all the party leaders in, in Britain today is that they won't talk about Brexit. Right. I mean, there is this extraordinary conspiracy of silence. Uh, if you see speeches or read articles, uh, the analysis is always there, Ukraine, energy, right. inflation, anything except Brexit. And why is that? Because if you look at what Brexit actually means in electoral terms, it means that north of Birmingham there are a serious number of what are traditional working class Labour votes mm. who bought into the sovereignty, the immigration, the foreigner arguments. And all political parties facing a general election in, in next year, almost certainly, yeah. um, uh, don't want to stir up the hornet's nest of that sector of the electorate um, uh, who, who might once again hear the rhetoric of populism uh, if one of the parties starts giving the impression of being uh, a European party. So the, all leaders run away from it. And uh, that's one of the problems why I mentioned earlier uh, talk of optimism or change <laughs> is premature. But unlike the Conservative Party, uh, there's a substantial vote, core vote, amongst Labour Party voters, which is pro European. It's a younger 
electorate, as you know, uh, is that therefore potentially a much bigger headache for the Labour Party than, say, for traditional Conservatives? No, because there's exactly the same constituency exists within the Conservative Party. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, so, so it's in, and it's it's through there in the Lib Dems. There is a, now in public terms. Uh, I think I saw a poll the other day. Sixty-eight percent of the population uh, now think that Brexit was a mistake. Mm. Well, uh, welcome, I say, but uh, a bit late. <laughs> well, you mentioned opinion polls. Uh, there's no shortage of opinion polls selling at the moment. Uh, giving broadly, obviously, the same uh, results and uh, indications of people's positions. Uh, are, are you surprised that it's taken all these years, seven years, for this broader uh, realization that Brexit wasn't qu what, what they were told it was going to be? The people who voted to believe. You have to realize that a major uh, influencer in this context would be the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph. Right. And they uh, were very much part of the Brexit campaign. Uh, they fed their readers the, the Brexit argument, populist argument, and uh, they are still unable to come to terms with the mistake that they were part of. And so their argument now is not that Brexit was wrong, but that Brexit was never done. Right. Well, of course, I could have told them Brexit was never going to be done because all the promises of Brexit were unfulfillable, right. uh, based on a, a complete lack of reality. Um, but today, it, I mean, if you read those two newspapers, you will be being told that the Brexiteers were cheated and robbed because they never got a chance. Hmm. The fact that their ministers were in power for seven years with all their hands on the levers of power seems to have passed them by as, as a, a matter of fact. Uh, so uh, we haven't yet got to the stage where a large part of the, uh, the electorate is daily being told that Brexit was never given a chance. They're being told that, but as you say, that the, the opinion polls are showing more and more uh, uh, this gradual but clear realization by many people that uh, it was a mistake or it has not been done properly, whatever line of argument you want to take, and that there's a, a clear and growing appetite for some kind of constructive re-engagement with Europe. Is that correct? I think that is right, um, but it's there's not much leadership right. on those on those platforms. And uh, as I say, most of the political debate is about solving problems uh, without actually confronting that one of the bigger problems is Brexit. Right. I know you're regularly asked this question on the time about whether you can Im imagine uh, any time soon or in the medium term, should we say, the UK rejoining Europe, the European Union. But I want to maybe give it a bit of a nuance because it's a clear purpose of the European movement, which you're president, that uh, there's a, basically a campaign to rejoin at some point in the future. And I want to press you on two things linked to that. One is that if it's not going to be realizable in, in, the, in say, the medium term, is, it, is there a danger that you may sort of raise false, you, the European movement and people and allies of yours will raise false hopes? Uh, and, and also you may alienate people you need to bring on side who, who maybe don't want to rejoin, but simply want to have a more constructive relationship. I think that the argument of the pro-Europeans must embrace both those possibilities. I, 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 it would be silly 
if you ask me the question, are you going to join Europe tomorrow? If I were to say yes, it would be ludicrous. Right. Um, so you can then ask me, well, how long? To which, in all honesty, I can't give you an answer, nor can anybody else. Right. But what I could say, and indeed this is already beginning to happen, is that the animosity that associated itself with the Brexit campaign is disappearing, right. and the political leaders today are establishing cordial relationships on a number of fronts. That is sensible, practical, uh, but not enough. Right. But one must welcome what one has, and uh, uh, so I am supportive indeed. I, only today, Jeremy Hunt is, uh, has signed a deal which uh, creates a dialogue over the financial That's services true. industry. Uh, well, better a dialogue than no dialogue. So you see a step-by-step -step approach, an incremental uh, strategy, if you like, of the current Tory leadership to engage with with the European Union on, on specific policy areas like financial services you just mentioned uh, and, and even the Conservatives who are led by, as you say, a Prime Minister who voted for Brexit nonetheless sees the value in these kind of pragmatic uh, engagement steps. I believe that. The Northern Ireland Protocol is a very exam good example of where he's come in and found a, a way forward. We haven't yet concluded but it's certainly he gets credit for that. Um, and uh, there are other indications of, of a dialogue beginning to emerge. Well, that's the first step. Right. And the European movement will argue for that and support it and welcome it. Uh, but if you take a first step, there could be a journey ahead, a second step, a third step. And uh, it's very important to have that in mind. This might be a, a theoretical question, certainly a premature question, but in the event of any position uh, of any government in the UK in, in the future about seeking to rejoin, you hear uh, often people say, well, the Europeans would not want us back, or if they were to uh, entertain a new negotiation for rejoining on the European side, the E27, there'd be lots of conditions attached, uh, all the the well-known opt-outs we had as a member before, the Schengen deal, the Euro uh, exemption and so on, would no longer be forthcoming. How do you react to that? Well, <laughs> the, the art of politics is to confront the problems and try and solve them. Right. And it's, uh, it's so easy to say, you know, here and now all these problems exist and therefore don't bother to take any steps in that direction. Uh, I myself don't believe these uh, hurdles. Right. Uh, I think that they are part of the currency of people who don't want to take the journey in the first place. Uh, my own feeling is that the principal reaction to Brexit in, in Europe is one of sadness that um, tinged with incredulity. Yeah. How on earth can a country like this have done what they have done. And I think that's, if one tries to keep the language under control, that's a pretty good summary of where we are. Uh, now, let's look to what Britain brings. Well, first of all, uh, self-evidently, a major defence power. And uh, so anybody who thinks about the security of Europe has to ask questions, well, where does Britain fit into this? Yeah. And, uh, of course, President Macron has ideas. 
some are welcome, others not so welcome, but they are ideas that you can't dismiss. Mm. For example, suppose there was a threat uh, to destabilize Europe, Western European. Are we seriously to be told that there would be 27 different ar armies, well mm. with us 28 different armies, all doing their own thing. Right. <laughs> I mean, you only have to put it like that to realize the lunacy of it. Yes. And in any of the uh, recent wars, there have been cooperative arrangements um, uh, that, that reflected the reality on the ground. Um, but of course, in the last one, it was an Anglo-American-led situation that, that made it all possible. But since then, the growing sense that it must never happen again, which is, of course, the founding, the founding motivation of the European movement at all, uh, starting with Churchill's great speech, we must create a kind of United States. He didn't say they, we. Yeah. Uh, so from that moment on, defence of Europe must work out how Britain plays its part. The second, that we will, if we were to rejoin, which I think we will, we would bring significant funds to the pool of resources of the European Union. And so that has the effect of being quite attractive to quite a few European mm -hmm. Union members because yeah. they can see that it'll head their way, quite rightly, because it is a structural fund designed to sort of raise living standards in the less prosperous parts of Europe. Mm. Nothing very dramatic uh, about that. We've had a regional policy in this country all my life. Right. Um, uh, so to have one on Europe is also uh, makes a lot of sense. But I also think that the issue of immigration is going to get bigger and I don't myself believe that there's any serious alternative to a European immigration policy. Right. I mean I, both of us have got our iPhones on the table <laughs> in front of us and this is the, this is the problem right. that these things are now in the hands of billions of people many of whom are living in acute conditions of poverty. Yeah. And they, they know what it's like in, in Western Europe, and it's a honeypot. And these, the people who are coming here are not the idlers and shirkers and all this sort of thing. They're the young who simply say, I want my family to share in that sort of living standard, and I'll take the most awful risks to get that. So my own view is, well, I'll just make the other point about we we have all the boat people coming across, mm. and people you can you, you know you hear people muttering about the French. They don't realise that those are not French people coming. They're just a fraction of the number of immigrants who've got into France. Yeah. Um, and uh, so my own view is clear that the only long-term European policy to deal with immigration is one that. Uh, creates a frontier around Western Europe. That I have, have no doubt is going to have to happen. And Britain should be part of that. But uh, in, in order to make that credible and moral, I think we need a Marshall Plan, the equivalent of the Marshall right. Plan. And, uh, to which the UK would contribute. To which the UK should contribute, both financially and in custodian right. contribution. 
and that uh, we should do deals with the countries from which the immigrants are coming, basically saying, look, uh, we can't accommodate them, um, but we will help you rebuild the economies so that they, the younger generation, can see there's a future for themselves in their own homes. Now, that's, that's an easy set of statements. It's not easy to do, and it's, uh, it's not a short-term answer. Uh, but it, I think it has got the, the germ of mm. an idea that is both practical, economic, and moral in terms of dealing with this huge imbalance of uh, poverty across the world. Plus, of course, global warming which is going to destabilize coastal communities on a very dramatic scale. Looking ahead to the next general election, which everybody predicts will take place toward the end of, of next year, for the sake of argument, we assume, bear with me, that Labour Party wins. What do you think will happen to the Conservative Party uh, after a possible quite substantial defeat at the next general election? Well, heaven forfend that I should uh, countenance such a result. But uh, let me deal with the hypothesis. You have to realize that the Conservative Party is the most successful political force in the history of democracy. Right. It has an uncanny knack, a, a sort of super sensitive smell to where the pivot of politics is. And it always finds it. So the Conservatives will be back and they will regroup on the platforms that people like myself have long admired in the Conservative Party. It's called One Nation Conservatism. Right. And the final question, Lord Heseltangle, I'd like to circle back to where we, where we started about the how, how the country has changed since the referendum seven years ago. But from a, uh, an external perspective, you used the word just now, incredulity, how uh, Europeans look at uh, another, other countries outside Europe, uh, for that matter, look at uh, the UK and can't quite understand or believe what's happened to the country without wishing to overstate it, because that's, that's not maybe appropriate. How do you think the, the reputation of the, of the United Kingdom has, has suffered in, in the past seven years in terms of external uh, soft power, if you like, never mind anything else, its reputation, how has that been affected? And, and, how, and how could any steps be taken to ameliorate that situation? Well, there's no thermometer of which I'm aware which measures people's views as to the standing of nations. But I have no doubt that the Brexit decision across the world was regarded with incredulity. And uh, the reputation of this country as a well-governed, sane, mm. uh, balanced parliamentary democracy took a step backwards. I'm sure that is the general view of what happens. And the quicker it's put by, the happier people like me will be. Right. Well, we have to leave it there. Michael, has a time. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure.